There are three stories that Poe wrote that constitute the beginnings of the detective fiction genre. They all feature the same detective whose name is C. Auguste Dupin. He's a Frenchman. The stories are set in Paris. And the stories are The Murders in the Rue Morgue, that's 1841. The Mystery of Marie Roget, that's 1842-43, because it was published in installments. And The Purloin Letter, that's 1845. That's it. Poe wrote that the four qualities one needs for a life of bliss are exercise in the open air, contempt of ambition, the love of a woman, and an object of unceasing pursuit. I'm going to talk about the last one. Poe has been an object of unceasing pursuit for me for the last, I don't know, 30 years, since I was a graduate student working with Leslie Fiedler in SUNY Buffalo. And I'm going to focus on a moment, which will take me back and then take me forward. And the moment is a moment in summer of 2004 when I was with my daughter, Emily, at a bookstore called Whit Whitlock Farms Booksellers in uh, Bethany, Connecticut. And uh, I was returning from uh, a couple talks I had given on a book I had written on Hawthorne. This talk is very much uh, uh, about one thing leading to another. Here's an example. We were in this bookstore. Whitlock Farms books Bookstore is a series of farm buildings that are occupied by many quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore. And as we were walking into one, I saw a little shelf on the side with a few books. And one of the books was sort of plain, ordinary, un unattention-getting, which, which, which got my attention. Because I thought, this is the kind of book that people would pass over. So I picked it up, and this is, this is the book. And I opened it, and I found that it concerned uh, a king and a queen, but the king was referred to as K, and the queen was referred to as Q. Uh, as if we couldn't figure that out, but okay. But I, I was uh, continuing to read. It's a slender book, so I could easily read it uh, quickly. But I was very suspicious, because I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the source for the Perloin letter. And I could project that source into this book, <laughs> given a chance. So I, I'm uh, reading and, and going on and on, wondering if this is all in my mind or not. When finally, on page 33, I find that... A minister for the princess, and this is a specific princess, Princess Carolyn, who was married to Prince George, who became Prince, who became King George IV. Right? This is a specific person. King George III, who was the king of England when we had the Revolutionary War, later went mad, and his son George became the regent. And when George III died, became George IV. So that's the man I'm talking about. His wife was named Carolyn, and they hated each other. Okay. <laughs> hated each other. And they, they had lovers on the side, and they, they fought each other directly through the press. Okay, so there's a minister who, who thinks that he can take advantage of the situation by stealing a letter that Princess Caroline has written to Prince George, having it published in the newspaper. And the letter is out there on the desk of the secretary, and he sees it, and he takes it, and he gives it to the newspaper, and it's published, and the king and uh, the prince and uh, princess are uh, farther apart than ever, because this was a uh, compromise of, of their privacy. And then the minister goes to brag about what he's done. He says, or the author of this book says, the man in office met that day his confreres at such and such a place, and after dinner amused him with an account of the purloined letter. So that's where this work this book started. This is 
about five years ago. And I read that, and it was a dream come true. Because I had always hoped that one day I could find the source for the Purloined Letter and write about it in the way that I had already done with regard to the murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay? So here's, uh, here's where I got a little impatient with my daughter. I said, Emily, are you finished? Uh, are you finished? It's time to go? And she's like, what is the problem? So we finally, you know, left and went to the car, and I showed her this book, and I opened it to the page, and she looked at me, and she knew why I'd been in a little bit of a hurry. Um, so uh, I'll go from there backward and then forward. To go backward, I got, again, in the, in the heading of one thing leads to another, I had been working on a novel that Poe wrote. That was my, the subject of my doctoral dissertation. The only novel he wrote was called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. And I uh, published various articles. I eventually published an edition of Pym that's, that's available in paperback. Uh, and it was 1987, and I was planning a conference on this book, because 1988 was 150th anniversary. Uh, a woman named Susan Beagle was my hostess. We had an appointment at a bank to raise money. I think it was the Pacific National Bank. And we had a free half an hour. And she said, well, we have some time. Would you like to go to the Nantucket Athenaeum, which is a vast cube, uh, an old building from the 19th century where Emerson and Thoreau used to speak. It was uh, in disrepair at the time I saw it. And what was available there was table after table of old newspapers. Nantucket Choir was the name of the newspaper. So I thought, I'll look in that 1838. Maybe I'll find a lost review of Arthur Gordon Pym. So... I looked. I didn't find the Lost Review of Arthur Gordon Pym. What I found instead was an article in September 38 about an escaped ape. Okay, an escaped ape. So I'm reading this article. It's just like a paragraph long. And the ape uh, escapes from a stable and goes into the window of this apartment and tears things apart and jumps out and tears somebody's scalp and a little boy and scratches his leg and and eventually, he's, high, he's uh, in a tree. People are trying to get him down. And the article ends there. We don't know what happened to him. I presume he came down. Um, so I showed it to my friend Susan. I said, Susan, what does this look like? And she said, after she read it, she said, it's Murders in the Room War, which is what I had thought, that it was a source for Murders in the Room War. So when I came home, I looked at the scholarship to see if anybody had ever found it. Nobody had. So then I thought, well, how would Poe have seen it? He was in Philadelphia, not Nantucket. Fortunately, the article was, was linked to a New York paper. I read the New York paper. But still, he was in Philadelphia. So I went ahead from that New York paper to find the Philadelphia paper where it was featured and recognized that the editors of the paper were friends of his. Not only that, I learned that the office of the newspaper was a few blocks from his house. So he had a strong connection to this newspaper. Unfortunately for me, the newspaper existed in a complete run nowhere. Fortunately for me, it was only a weekly and it only ran for two and a half years. So I was able to go to a half a dozen different uh, libraries and collect all but nine issues. And then the librarian here, whose name is Sue Kellerman, the uh, conservationist here, uh, said, have you checked the Library of Congress? I had not. I, I called them. I said, do you have this newspaper? They said, yeah. I said, do you have any of these dates? And I was told, we have all of those dates. So I had a complete set of this newspaper, and I was able to find a dozen sources for the murders in the Rue Morgue. And I published it as a little booklet. And I thought, okay, I'm done with uh, our friend uh, C. Auguste Dupin. But I wasn't, as you know from the story I started with. So when I found this book, I thought, well, I could take the work I did on the murders in the Rue Morgue. I could 
do research on this source for the mystery, uh, for the uh, purloined letter, and then I could see if I could find anything new to say about the mystery of Marie Roger, which is the middle story, not so famous, but still an important story. So that began my work on this book. So researching uh, this uh, little book, which is called, by the way, Deathbed Confessions, I discovered the, uh, first the uh, very fraught marriage of these two people, but then I found that Poe would have known about this situation because in 1820 he was returning with his foster parents, John and Francis Allen, from London, where John Allen's business, export import business, had, had failed, back to Richmond. And it's June 1820, and the newspapers are full of one thing Carolyn is coming back. She'd gone to live in, in Europe. She, she had various escapades, and the king, or, yeah, well, the regent, I guess, sent his spies over there so he would have evidence of her infidelity. And she was unfaithful, there's no question about it. Um, but uh, the, the people of England loved the princess, and they hated the king. So it didn't matter if she was guilty or not. She was going to be found not guilty. Um, anyway, there's Poe as a boy, he's 11 years old, with his foster parents, traveling from London to Liverpool, and every day in the paper, the Queen is getting closer. She's coming to the English Channel, she's crossing the English Channel, she's in Dover, she's in the next town, she's in the next town, she's coming to London. And there was a fervor, and the people were just excited, and every town she appeared in, they were welcoming her, and, and there were parades and so forth. And the King, of course, is terrified. What's going to happen? He doesn't want this woman to come back. He certainly doesn't want her to become Queen. Poe's foster father is writing about this circumstance. There are letters that I've read at the Library of Congress in which he says the king will never allow her to attend the coronation, which is true. She wasn't allowed to attend the coronation, and she died shortly thereafter, possibly um, through her own doing. She was, she was very unhappy. But Poe's reading about this, and he would have heard of it not only through his foster father, but through the newspapers. And the last newspaper that's published in Liverpool, before the ship goes, the ship was called the Martha, goes on board the ship, of course, because it's going to be the news to New York City when the ship arrives, whatever, a month and a half later. So you can imagine Poe and his foster parents talking, or hearing others talk about, well, what's going to happen? The Queen's going to arrive. What's the King going to do? And finally, they arrive in New York, and now this is the headline of the New York paper, because the London, the Liverpool paper has finally arrived. And I can imagine that Poe's uh, foster parents would have been asked, what's going on? What's the deal with Carolyn and and, uh, and George. So it would have been a story that was very familiar to him from these years. And then if you follow his writings through his life, he ever so often comments on the couple, mostly disparaging the king as the most despicable man alive. He was a, a decadent, high-living fellow. He really married the queen, the princess, only to get the parliament to pay him the money that he needed to live to cover his debts. And there was another very interesting element, which I'll bring in at this point, which is that in the case of the Rue Morgue, the woman who was killed was killed by her husband because he believed she'd been unfaithful. And friends, according to the article that I read, said there may have been something to this. So he chooses for his first detective story a story, a source, about a woman who is unfaithful. Now, in the Purloin letter, the whole thing about Carolyn is that she was unfaithful. She was independent, and she would do what she wanted to do, and of course, this infuriated the king. So it seemed to me an unusual connection. He could have written about anything. He was starting a genre. Why did he choose to write about this? But then I paid attention to the, mi the middle story, the mystery of Marie Roger. And I had been told, uh, I, 
the scholarship had told me that there was no point in doing research on this anymore because it had all been done. Um, in, 1840, in 1941, there was an article published about the newspaper sources for the mystery of Marie Roget, and that was that. Well, I hoped that wasn't, I hoped that, that wasn't that because I was putting my money on the fact that I could possibly find something new. I went to New York City and I worked in places like the New York Historical Society, the New York Society Library, um, the New York Public Library, um, and read every newspaper I could find for 1841, which is the period of time when Mary Rogers uh, died. Now, the controversy was, was she killed? And if so, by whom and why? Or alternatively, did she die in a botched abortion? which began to look like the case as more evidence came out. And Poe revised his story to accommodate that possibility. Um, so uh, I found three important uh, items that uh, Mr. Professor Mabbitt had not known. One was I found the source for what Poe called an extract from a newspaper, except he'd attributed it to the wrong newspaper. It wasn't in that newspaper. It was in another newspaper. Um, why he made the change, it may have to do with the fact that uh, because of his French made-up names for newspapers, um, there would otherwise have seemed to be uh, two newspapers with the same name, which would have been a problem. Alternatively, maybe he just forgot what the original newspaper was. Be that as it may, the source that uh, Poe was identifying was a real source. It was not made up, as scholars had said, because they couldn't find it. So that was very encouraging. A small detail, but very encouraging. The next thing I found was that there was an historical context that Poe would have known, which is that there was a murder of a woman whose name was Juliana Sands in 1799. I've read it in the newspaper. It's right next to articles about the uh, funeral of George Washington. George Washington died in late 1799. And in 1800, the man who was accused of her murder was tried and found innocent. His uh, defense attorneys were Alexander, ha Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burke. This is a very celebrated murder, one of the first sort of uh, horrifying murders that uh, became a major press story in New York City. And it became the basis for a novel named Norman Leslie by Theodore Fay in 1835, and this was a novel that Poe, as the editor of the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, slammed, utterly panned, utterly mocked. He was called the, the Tomahawk Man, and this was one of the, reason, one of the uh, reviews that justified that title. So, uh, of course, we knew he knew Norman Leslie. He'd reviewed it, but we didn't know he knew the Juliana Sands uh, source until I found in the 1841 newspapers writers comparing the death of Mary Rogers to the death of Juliana Sands. It was explicit. It was out there. So that was the second part. The third find had to do with the literary battle Poe was involved in, which uh, specifically this wasn't known. He had lots of literary battles, uh, you may know. Um, but this one was kind of invisible. He writes in the mystery, in the mystery of Marie Roger that the editor of L'Etoile uh, has no right to be offended. Now, the editor, L'Etoile referred to the Brother Jonathan, which was one of these elephant folio newspapers came out weekly, and then there was a daily called The Evening Tavern. The editor of the Brother Jonathan was a fellow named H. Hastings Weld. And H. Hastings Weld never said in any of his writing about Mary Rogers that he was offended. So why does Poe say he has no right to be offended? Well, 
had been offended about something else. He'd been offended at one of Poe's tomahawking reviews of a good friend of his named Seba Smith, who, who also had uh, uh, another name, Downing. Um, and so I tracked backward the exchanges between the two and inferred that the story in part was Poe's effort to get back at this man who'd savaged him for writing a savage review. <laughs> right? And this is the sort of thing he did, except it's so subtle here, it's more evident in a more famous story called The Cask of Amontillado, where he walls up this fellow, Fortunato, in the wall, and we know enough to know that that fellow is Thomas Dunn English, who was Poe's fierce enemy. And when Fortunato says, for the love of God, Montresor, and Montresor says, yes, for the love of God, and puts in the last brick, that's Poe getting, getting his man. So here it's happening more subtly, and uh, H. Hastings Wells had attacked Poe's review. Poe wrote a letter to him in which, he, in which he says, if you ever get tired of abusing me and the brother Jonathan, I would be happy to be, you know, get to know the author of such and such. But Wells did not stop abusing him. And a few months later, he wrote another attack on Poe. And it was at that point, I think, Poe figured, okay, enough is enough. He had his chance. And now I have mine. And so he embedded, I think, embedded this literary conflict into his story. Now, to get back to the broader view of the three stories, what have we got in the case of Mary Rogers? We've got a woman who, in all the papers, was said to have had an uncertain reputation. In 1838, she disappeared for a few weeks. And she came back, and she wouldn't explain where she'd been or what had happened. She just looked sad. And then in 1841, she disappeared, and of course, then her body was found. So the surmise was that she'd had an unhappy love affair, or maybe un two unhappy love affairs, or two unhappy love affairs with the same man. People don't know, and to this day, we don't exactly know. But the point is, not so much that we know exactly what happened, but that we understand her reputation, which is that she was a woman who was not thought to be wholly upstanding, according to the standards of that time, unmarried woman. Uh, so now I'm backing away from these stories, and I'm thinking, okay, we had the man murdering his, um, his unfaithful wife as a source for the Rue Moore. We have the story of this compromised young woman in uh, the mystery of Marie Roger. And we have this story of an adulterous queen in uh, the Pearl Line Letter. So, you know, what's going on here? In one of his stories, Poe says that one of the ways to figure out a mystery is to look for the most outrageous or unusual detail, the thing that's away from the plane of the ordinary, as opposed to in the Perline letter where he says, look in the most ordinary place. There's the letter in the letter box. He offers a series of pieces of advice as to how to solve a mystery, and this piece suggested that I look at this common element. It seemed utterly arbitrary unless there was a reason for his choosing stories with this element. So then I backed away to earlier in his life. He lost his mother when he was two years, ten months old. His mother's name was Eliza Poe. He had an older brother named Henry. He had a younger sister named Rosalie. He wrote that there was no tie, I'm quoting here, no tie more strong than that of brother for brother, not so much because they love one another as because they love the same parent. The parent they loved was Eliza Poe. They did not love their father. Their father had left the family, just abandoned them. He had been an actor. He had been a rather poor actor. We know that because we've seen the, the negative uh, reviews he got. He was also a drinker. 
and he just disappeared from the family at a certain point, and we don't hear anything more about him. And nothing in anything Poe ever read suggests that he had suggests that he had any feeling for this man whatsoever. But he loved his mother. And when he and his brother, who were brought up separately, finally got together as teenagers in Richmond, Henry would visit Edgar. I'm sure that what they would talk about in part was Henry's memories of Eliza, because he, as the five-year-old, would have remembered more than Edgar as the nearly three-year-old. Well, what's the connection? The connection is that Poe's biological father abandoned the family 12 months before his sister was born. And that was a very big deal at the time. And we have documentation that's in some of the Poe biographies that people in Richmond talked. Where did this little girl come from? You know? And John Allen, the foster father, never adopted Poe, so Poe never had a legal claim on him. Um, the foster father, John Allen, wrote to Henry, Poe's older brother, and said, your sister is only half your sister. Let us not speak ill of the dead or something like that. So think about Poe growing up. He's not a biological son. He's not even an adopted son. He's a foster son. Furthermore, his parents were actors. In the early 19th century, actors were despised. They were, they were uh, you know, sort of contemptible people of questionable morals. So he had this, this baggage that he was carrying around that probably he didn't understand in the beginning, but as he grew older, he began to understand. And then there was this additional feature, and the feature was people were saying things about his mother, his mother whom he loved, and he couldn't figure out what to say. Back, he can't talk to his mother, he couldn't find out what really happened. Even if he could, what would he say? And a friend of his who was very close to him late in his life, Marie-Louise Schuh-Houghton, wrote a letter to one of the co-biographers saying, Edgar used to say that the great regret of his life was that he never defended his mother as the pure, as pure and innocent as a woman could be on this earth. So I had my inferences, but then I had this letter, which sort of said, yeah, there was a problem here. It's not anything we associate with the popular Poe of popular culture, but it was his private concern that maybe I could have done something, maybe I could have said something. These people are insulting my mother, you know. Look. So, I'm inferring that he creates the detective story. He creates Monsieur Dupin, the detective, to solve mysteries in place of the mystery he can't solve. The mystery he can't solve is who is Rosalie's father? What actually happened? And he creates, in the Purloin letter, not in the first two stories, but in the Purloin letter, finally an occasion where he can compensate, at least through his writing, for that great regret of his life. Because in this story alone, Dupin not only solves the mystery, in this case, where is the purloined letter, but by finding the purloined letter, he retrieves the object that created the minister's ability to blackmail the queen, to threaten her reputation. And thereby, although he's not able to prove her innocent, he's able to prevent somebody else from proving her guilty. At the end of the story, he says, I am an advocate for the woman in question. And I think finally through the story, the Perline letter, Poe was an advocate for the illustrious personage in his own life, to use his language, his mother, Eliza Poe.
that's a, a summary of the work I did. I'm happy to talk with you about any questions you have or thoughts you might want to raise. I am skeptical about the claims of Poe's love for his mother. If you ask most individuals in this room, what they if, can they remember anything at all uh, when they were of the period when they were two or even three years old? I think most will say no. Well, he, if he rem I don't know if he remembered her or not, but there's enough documentation uh, in, in which he talks about his love for his mother, in which he says, he's writing to somebody who knew his mother, and he says, you've brought up my mother, and that is a, that is a heartstring to which I respond. He talks about his mother's greatness as an actress. He talks, the quotation I offered before, there's no tie more strong than that of brother for brother, not because they love each other, as because they love the same parent. It couldn't have been David Poe. David Poe was a bum. So, so that's, part of, that's a large part of the reason. And he carried around throughout his life, it still exists now at the Free Library of Philadelphia, a daguerreotype, uh, not a daguerreotype, an ivory portrait of his mother. No comment on the gentleman who just said, does anybody who's two years old remember? It is true, one doesn't remember, but precisely because one doesn't remember, you put your unremembered parent on such a high pedestal that to read anything derogative or finding fault with the parent you have no memory of becomes tantamount. It becomes a fight for the rest of the life to defend the parent that you didn't have a memory of. Would you write a review of my book, please? <laughs> <laughs> always thought that when in reading uh, these the fiction uh, that there it really was all made up about um, uh, sources and things like that and uh, I hadn't thought of it being masked so I'm very grateful to you for introducing into my mind that um, that dimension I think this is very interesting I mean there are all sorts from the 18th century you know you read these, um, these prefaces about how this was invented. We found this material somewhere, and uh, uh, it purports to be a whole document. I think the notes from the underground, for example, uh, later on. But I, I think it's a persistent um, trend in uh, world literature, um, at least European-based. Uh, so this was very interesting. Well, well, thank you. I mean, there's... Uh... There's a polarity, because you can go too far, and you could think that everything Poe wrote happened to him. I remember uh, I went into a class of my daughter's when she was a grade school student at Park Forest Elementary, <coughs> and the children had all written questions on a piece of paper, and the teacher was reading the questions to me, and the first question was, how many people did Poe really kill? <laughs> and the next question was, was... Uh, was Poe crazy even when he was a kid, or was he just crazy as an adult? You know? <laughs> so, but on the other hand, it, it would be a mistake to think that it's all a fabrication, that there's not a basis in fact. And he even wrote uh, a, a critical piece in which he talked about a particular interpretation of Dante, mocking some of the other interpretations, which were sort of you know, religious <coughs> interpretations, uh, and in, in place of them preferring a reading in terms of Dante's own life. So that's just totally fitting with what 
Um, I think he does, which is he embeds his life in his work throughout his, his writing career. I started with the novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. That's all about his brother and his mother. Isn't there sort of a paranoia amongst uh, smaller communities uh, where a writer lives that they're going to be revealed, they're true, you know, in, in some manner or other of fiction? That's true. The, the case in point that comes quick, quickest to mind is Thomas Wolfe, who lived in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, his story is totally based on the facts of Asheville, North Carolina. There wasn't even a character he made up. They were all real people. And when the book was published, the people of Asheville were extremely embarrassed, and they wouldn't carry the book in the library. It so happened, Fitz, Scott Fitzgerald's wife was in a sanitarium near Asheville, North Carolina, and he went to the library, and he found that they wouldn't carry Look Homeward Angel, you know, and he bought them two copies, and he said, you put this on your shirt. Could, could you speak to um, the character of Dupin and uh, any relationship you see between him and Poe, if Poe's creating him as a, as a way of um, uh, making up for any of his own personal deficiencies or his own inabilities to protect his mother or whatever else. You just talk about... Yes, yes, sure, sure. Um, Poe is the master of terror, and it wasn't simply a literary terror. He said, my terror is not of Germany, but of the soul. Because he'd been criticized for relying too much on German romanticism. But even as he was that guy, he was also this ultra-raciocinative, to use his word, fellow. He spent a year breaking codes. He advertised that he could break any code anybody sent him when he was in Philadelphia. So people start sending him codes. So he breaks this code, and he breaks that code. And he eventually, he, according to his own judgment, he broke every code that was fair. <laughs> certain codes that were in six different languages, you know, he, could, he couldn't figure it out. But every code, he said, I sort of wasted a year of my life figuring out all these codes. Um, I think Dupin is of a piece with that code-breaking fellow. If some of you may remember the gold bug, there's a code in there. It's got a solution. It can be found. He said, there's no code that man has created that man cannot decipher. Um, so Dupin was sort of his ultimate ratiocinative self at the other end from the guy who wrote The Pit and the Pendulum and The Fall of the House of Usher. And I think you're right that he was uh, a compensatory character, one who could solve problems when Poe knew that the really critical problem for him, he couldn't solve. The, the name was a blending of names that were around. There was this fellow who was applying for a job as a French teacher whose name was C. Auguste something else, Dubochet, I think. And Dupin was an actual person. There were two Dupins. They were brothers in France at the time. And one of them was a legendary lawyer, and the other was, I think, a mathematician. And doubtless Poe was borrowing the renown of these brothers for his character. So um, I think uh, that's, uh, that's where the name comes from. The character is not very well fleshed out. We only have the three stories. In total, the three stories probably total 100 pages. We don't know a lot about him. He was once affluent. He's fallen in hard times. He's a devoted reader. He collects, or at least reads, rare books. That's how he finds. That's how he meets the narrator. He sleeps during the day. He lives at night. He walks the city of Paris. Um, he has contempt for the police, perhaps in, in this case, with good reason. Um, and he 
He's able to divine what others are not with his apparatus, being able to identify with others, being able to look for the common strange element, being able to look at the ordinary that other people are missing. Um, I think that, that Dupin is a kind of hero, as any uh, of our, any of the detectives we know in, in, in culture are. I mean, think of, uh, you know, I don't know, CSI or Law and Order or any of these shows we watch, you know, they all have this detective element. We follow with fascination and we're particularly amazed when a logical conclusion is reached that we couldn't reach in the same time. How did you do that? You know? So, now, Poe said, well, you know, where is the greatness in solving a problem I set up myself? So, you know, that's a, that's a, a fair enough comment, and suggestive of, of a certain degree of modesty, which we don't find a lot of in Poe. But uh, still, he started the genre. And I think that's an amazing credit. You know, that's enough for any person's reputation to start an entire genre. And he did more than that. So, thank you for the question. I have a question, Richard. Yes. Um, do you think that Poe uh, was the first to create a character who used this kind of deductive reasoning a la Sherlock Holmes? And are there any, um, uh, is there any evidence of Arthur Conan Doyle explicitly borrowing from, from Poe? Um, any connections? I'll work backwards from the end. Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle is an interesting case because his character, Sherlock Holmes, uh, said very critical things about Dupin. He's a very inferior fellow. Several times in different stories, he, he criticized Dupin. And Doyle was criticized, I think by G.K. Chesterton, if I remember, for uh, having Holmes uh, faulting Dupin when Chesterton recognized that Doyle was totally in, in Poe's debt. And du uh, Conan Doyle wrote a poem in which he expressed his exasperation with people who thought that what Sherlock Holmes said was what he thought. He said, Sherlock Holmes is this egomaniac I created. That's what he thinks. What I think is, of course, Poe is a great man and Dupin is a remarkable character. Uh, and he borrows from uh, Sherlock Holmes repeatedly, uh, including, I'm sorry, I said it backwards, Sherlock Holmes, Do Conan Doyle, uh, you know, you're not supposed to mention Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is a real person. You know. um, Conan Doyle borrowed from the Proline Letter in, in one of his stories, and uh, from the Rue Morgue in another one. So there's, there's no question. In fact, I think he said, I think I have this right, that if every writer, and this is back in 1920-something, if every writer were to set a stone down uh, for his debt to Edgar Allan Poe, you'd very quickly have a pyramid. Now, to keep going backwards, um, there were... Uh, I'm not aware of a story in which there was a detective, as there is Dupin in Poe's Dupin stories, but there were stories in which there was ratiocination, in which things were deduced. There was a story by Voltaire called Zadig that has that element. And you can uh, notice other cases going all the way back. Well, um, think of Hamlet, where Hamlet's trying to figure <coughs> out if his uncle really did kill his father. So he sets this trap, right? He figures it out. The, the play's the thing in which I'll catch the conscience of the king. And the, uh, the, the actors performed the murder of this man by pouring poison in his ear. And the, ki uh, the king says, lights, lights. And Hamlet knows that the, the ghost of his father was a true ghost. And you could go farther, farther, farther back. In fact, I taught a story, I, I taught a course on detective stories uh, at Penn State Du Bois last fall. And we started with Oedipus. Oedipus is a detective story. Why is Thebes in ruins? What's going on? Why is everybody dying? The king, Oedipus, is bound to find it out. 
he's going to find this man. He sa it said that there's this particular individual whose fault it is that the town is, is in crisis. Well, he doesn't realize, of course, that the person whose fault it is is himself. And he questions people. And he gets information from the Oracle at Delphi. And he finds somebody who knew how the baby was transferred 20 years ago. And, he, and eventually he realizes it's him. He killed his own father. He married his own mother. So there's an example of a kind of deductive reasoning, a very tragic example, obviously, that uh, is part of the heritage that Poe would well have known. You said that uh, Poe started the genre. Uh, how did he do that? Did he know he was writing detective stories? Were there any detective stories before him? Uh, did he serendipitously uh, just stumble into it? I'm sorry to say Poe did sometimes stumble. <laughs> um, I don't think he knew he invented the detective story because he, didn't, he, lived, he died in 49, only uh, eight years after he wrote the first one. And, you know, he doesn't know. He didn't know what, what would happen next. We have a whole genre to look at. Um, I think it was fortuitous. I don't think he said, okay, I'm going I'm to create a new genre here. Yeah. I think he was fascinated with... Uh, violence. He was fascinated with deduction, ratiocination. Uh, he was fascinated with the issue of infidelity. He, here was a story that combined them. Um, and I think it was, it, was, it was so good that it started a genre, but I don't think he knew it ahead of time. I think if he were alive today, he'd be positively joyous <laughs> to be alive today. <laughs> events as a basis for his stories, what prompted him to write the stories as a, as a response to what? I guess you mentioned this in passing, but could you expand on that a little? Well, I the, think... The events couldn't have been the prompting because thousands of other people saw these events as well and didn't, didn't write mystery stories. Right. But, okay, yeah, absolutely right. But he was attentive to the popular imagination. He didn't want to write just some esoteric thing that three people would read. He wanted to appeal, and I think he knew that this murder in New York City and Broadway would uh, engage people. He, he disguised it, but it still had the quality of uh, violence and uh, uh, a hint of sexuality and a hint of racial tension that would engage in, um, his readers. He said he was interested in writing for the many and the few. He didn't want to just write something artful without a mass audience. He, he made so little money in his life, he needed whatever profit he could uh, get from the, the magazine market. Uh, in the case of Mary Rogers, well, this was a fabulous story to write about because it was all the rage to talk about. In 1841, it was like, you know, uh, you know any of our more uh, sensational uh, stories today, um, you know, the OJ story or, or something like that. This was a huge, huge deal. And in the case of the Perline letter, well, this was, th this was an exception because the story was old by then. It was, uh, and I'm not sure, people did still talk about Queen Carolyn and King George, but it wasn't as racy as something ripped out of the newspaper from, uh, you know, the last year or two. So it's hard to point to uh, anything in his earlier life which would have uh, 
prompted him suddenly as a ba on the basis of these th three things to uh, do such a remarkable thing as to invent a new style of story. Um, okay, that, that's fair enough, but I would highlight the fact that he was always in, interested in deduction, in ratiocination, and that precedes 1841. You can track backwards in his life and see that as a pattern. So if you're looking around for somebody to, to invent a detective story at that time, Poe was a good candidate because he had this habit of mind of figuring things out, and his habit of mind was different than ours in as much as he said, there's only one answer. It, you know, it's not a matter of I sneeze and you cough. There's one answer. You're right or you're wrong, which is you know, not our typical approach to things today. But in his day, that was his approach. I think you could also track backwards to his being very good in math. I, and math usually has one answer, whether it's algebra or geometry or what have you. And I think that uh, the, the verbal skills, the math skills, and his interest in identifying answers in the face of an, a childhood experience where he didn't know the answer, I think gives a certain push in the direction of uh, creating the detective story. But I'm not saying that's enough, but I'm saying it's a, it's a little nudge in the, right, in the right way. It sounds as though there were things that made it possible for him to do it, but is that enough to be a motive for doing it? <clears throat> well, I mean, part there are lots of mathematicians who haven't written detective stories. Right, right, right. Well, you know, Poe wrote the philosophy of composition in which he writes how he wrote the rape. And some of it's true, I think, and some of it's probably not so true. So there's a poet in, who wrote a book called Rambles and Reveries of an Art Student, uh, in which he said, okay, Poe gave the recipe for writing a great poem. I'm going to follow his directions. I'm going to write a great poem. And he writes this perfectly awful poem. Okay, so, you know, Poe was a genius. There was something great about Poe that he couldn't put down on paper for us to copy, you know. Um, beyond that, the, the other motive I would focus on is he was looking for not only success, financial success. He had very little, but he was looking for whatever he could find. But he was also looking for fame. There he was in Philadelphia. He had a relatively stable life for six years between 1838 and 44. It got less stable as his wife got sick. But he was working for the, you know, the long goal. He was trying to do the thing that would be absolutely great. And um, I think he took his ratiocinative skills to the nth degree with Rumorg, and part of his motivation was a claim. I am terrific. And don't you see that? You know? <laughs>
he didn't invent the detective story. In fact, he was influenced by Poe in his writing, I think, The Scarlet Letter, uh, in terms of detection. So, you know, it's sort of like nature versus nurture. You can't rule out either one. Yes, there had to be the opportunity, there had to be the cultural responsiveness, and there were, was both. But you also had to have Poe to respond and to, I think, invent. Would the genre have been invented if Poe hadn't invented it? Probably. It just seems so much of our, you know, a natural part of our lives. I can't imagine it not existing. Somebody would have done it eventually. I hear that uh, Poe was either inspired to write Raven or he wrote it when he stayed in Potter's Mill. Have you heard about it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have two answers. One is, uh, we don't know what Poe did every day of his life. He lived in Philadelphia. He could have made his way here. I, I can't rule it out. It's not an impossibility. On the other hand, seeing E.A. Poe carved in a table at the Utah house, I don't think <laughs> Now, but it's a lovely story. I have uh, a friend who, uh, who works at another campus now uh, who was a folklorist. And he said, and I don't know if this is true, but he said there was, there was a folklorist in the early part of the century whose idea of uh, being a folklorist was to make up folklore. <laughs> and his name was William Shoemaker. Has anybody heard of him? So um, I don't know if this is true. I, I made a friend of mine very upset when I said this, and I retracted it. I said, uh, it was a mistake. Forget about it. I, according to my friend, he made up the story of the Nittany Lion. <laughs> and uh, the stories about Poe coming to central Pennsylvania here first in a book called Poe the Man by Mary Phillips in 1925, and her source is William Shoemaker. I just uh, wanted to add to that last point. Uh, I was at the University of Del Delaware for a while, and they claimed down there that he did write The Raven in Delaware. <laughs> 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 and a bar, right? There's a bar in Newark, right? Newark, And they right. have a drink there called Post Curse. I've heard that there's it's, a drink. Yeah, there. it's called, what is it called now? I forget what it's called. Yeah. That he cursed the city because he was so mad at the way it was treated, so there's a drink in Bible called Post Curse. Um, what, what I know about the writing of the Raven, there are stories that he may have taken as long as 10 years to write the Raven, but towards the point at which he was about to publish it, he was seen... Um, uh, reading the Raven aloud in a uh, near a farmhouse in Saratoga Springs in what is now Yaddo, the writer's colony, writer's colony, and a little boy overheard him. This is the story, and said, "Who ever heard of a Raven saying nevermore?" And Poe said, "That's very good. I'm going to use that." <laughs> and, and the other reminiscence is from a woman who was a little girl in the Brennan, Brennan farmhouse where Poe lived in 1844. Just before he made his, you know, sort of return to New York City, Brennan Farmhouse is now on the Upper West Side, but in that, those days it was country. And he was writing, or possibly revising, The Raven and letting the sheets fall to the floor, and this little girl saw this mess of sheets, and she quietly crept in and picked up all the sheets and put them in order and sort of straightened them out and put them on the desk uh, for Mr. Poe. So those are some details of, I think, some true details about uh, his writing of The Raven. Um, but...
Yeah. We can't rule out other stories, and I, I enjoy the stories just as much as everybody else. So. Could you say something about the 200th anniversary of Poe's birth this year and w whatever um, celebrations are taking place or events? Do you know? Yeah, well, it's an amazing... It's amazing. I mean, it is a 200th anniversary of Poe's birth. It's also the 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth, 200th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birth. It's the 400th anniversary of the half moon going up the Hudson River, and they're doing a lot with that in Albany. Yeah. And there are some other anniversaries. I can't remember all of them. Poe has had an outstanding and amazing uh, response to his bicentennial internationally. There's a conference in Portugal, there are two conferences in Spain, there are two conferences in Russia, there's a conference in Japan, I'm involved with a conference here in Philadelphia, um, and there are various smaller events like this one, I'm about to give a talk at NYU, I'm talking at Texas A&M, I see on the Poe listserv that various other scholars are more than usually busy, you know, doing, doing a lecture here or a presentation there, um, so uh, it's... Uh, it's quite amazing, it's quite pleasing to see what kind of interest he provokes, even all around the world. Uh, I'm going to St. Petersburg in, in September, you know, uh, because they want me to speak on Poe in St. Petersburg. Fabulous, <laughs> terrific. There's a book called Poe Abroad, which was published in around 2003 or something, by, edited by Lois Vines, and it's got about 25 chapters, each on Poe in a different country, written by an expert on the literature of that country. And, of course, that's not every country in the world, but it's uh, 25 or so important countries. And he was an influence on the writers of whatever country we're talking about, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century. I think perhaps that was uh, a time of particular influence, especially because he uh, was translated by Baudelaire, and everybody read the Baudelaire translation. Well, we'll have to end there, but can you please join me in thanking Richard Copley for this